You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We did, what did we do? Death on Mother's Day? Um, I don't remember on Father's Day. Women are bitter on Father's Day, yeah. Okay, so today, sanctification. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. While you're doing that, let's start with prayer. Uh, Father, indeed, I need, I, need your, I need your presence. I need your guidance. I need to be, uh, I need to be clear as I share your word. It is, a, it is a high and humbling thing to come and share your word with your people. And so, Lord, I pray that um, your word would be handled accurately, that, that we would hear it rightly. We would understand those things that you, the Holy Spirit intends for us to understand from it and nothing else, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing on today in First Peter. This is our first message in First Peter. There's a clock up here now for some reason. I don't know if it's ever been up here before or if it just got put up here. So we'll do a brief review of what it means to be elect exiles of the dispersion, which we've, those are the messages that we've already done. And then we're, we're going to look at sanctification today. We'll get a definition of sanctification. We'll look at the stages of sanctification. We'll understand whose work is sanctification. The goal of sanctification. We'll have some encouragement in sanctification. I know the word of the day is really getting some major use right now. Um, and then application of the truth that we're going to hear today about sanctification and then a conclusion. So we'll start with the review. We're, there are three words that Peter uses to refer to believers in the book of First Peter that he starts with. And that's by extension then all, not only as first readers, but all who would receive the book, all believers. And I know that uh, with the first word we're going to look at is elect. And I know that in your translations, different translations have moved the words around a little bit. In the original language, it starts with Peter's description of himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then the two section, to the, and the next word is elect. To the elect exiles of the dispersion is the way that the ESV does it. All right, so the first term is elect. The three terms are elect, the word that is translated as exiles or sojourners or pilgrims, and then the word for dispersion or scattered. And those are words we've looked at before, so we'll just do that briefly. The first word is elect. We found a long time ago, we were over in the gym, and it was on the bleachers, if you remember that. Elect means elect. It means chosen. It actually means what it says. It means that God in eternity past chose a people for himself. He actually made an active choice. It does not mean, and the the corresponding phrase there, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it doesn't mean that God looked through the corridors of time, saw who would respond positively to the gospel, and then falsely claimed that he had chosen them, when in fact they they would eventually choose him. That's not what it means. What it means is what it says, God chose them, according to his foreknowledge. So according to that foreknowledge, the elect are truly and actually genuinely chosen by God for salvation. The basis of his choice is never given to us in Scripture. The basis of his choice of some for salvation is never given to us beyond his own inscrutable will, beyond the foreknowledge of God the Father. That foreknowledge, remember, is that special love, a special intimacy of concern that he had for his elect. And that's the only basis. 
Where God is not subject to any rule, he doesn't have to justify his choice. He's subject to no rule, no limitation, no claim on him other than his own self-definition. He does what he pleases. And he was pleased in eternity past to choose a people for himself. And then as he pleases in history, he reveals his choice in history through giving people faith and repentance to believe. Right? That's election. Okay. Then he refers to us as aliens scattered or aliens of the dispersion. That demonstrates the nature of our lives here. Okay? We are elect and now we live our lives here as aliens scattered in and among unbelievers. There is a genuine separation between believers and unbelievers. It's, it's made apparent in our obedience to the commands of Scripture. That's what separates us from unbelievers. That's how we live our lives as aliens on this planet. That is how we are distinct. We live in obedience to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. Okay? So then the application of that, that identification of us as believers here in the, just the very beginning of the chapter, beginning of the book, Peter is letting us know there's going to be an antagonism that is generated by you aliens. Okay? Because you believe in the gospel. Because you love God, who is the judge of the unbeliever, who they must willfully deny, there's a natural antagonism. Right, so he's setting the stage at the very beginning, let us, letting us know there could be persecution to come. There ought to be. It would be natural that there would be, because the gospel is offensive. Okay? So you love the gospel, you're offensive. Okay? You ought to expect that there's going to be persecution. Expect it. Endure it and even embrace it. That's the lesson of 1 Peter. Right? So that's the first comfort that Peter offers his readers is the sovereignty of God in their suffering, in their persecution. Helping them to understand that you are living as aliens on this planet according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay? That term, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, applies to all three of the terms that are used to identify us. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we're aliens according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and we're dispersed on this planet in and among unbelievers according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that ought to be great comfort. Right? Everything that's happening to you, everything that you deal with is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay? So it kind of begs a question, though, to me. I understand we are, as God's elect, we are put here on this planet as aliens. We're scattered in and among unbelievers. That makes for a difficult life. We're on this sin-cursed planet. But why? Have you thought about that? Why are we not just immediately translated to heaven? We're God's elect. Why not just take us to heaven? Right? Upon our birth or upon our conversion, why don't we just go to heaven? What is being accomplished by living this life? All of this living. Why? What, what, what's it about? What? We'll look at that. I don't go too far. Diane kept telling me it's too long, too long. So I kept cutting, so I'm, I'm good. Don't worry. Uh, so now we see some of this. Look in, in verse, I don't know if it's one or two. I, I have it written down. It must be two. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Our lives as elect aliens scattered throughout the world is in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, there's, a, again, a little bit of a translation choice. You might have by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, something like that. I'm, I'm going to follow the more common translation choice of in because it makes more sense. We are not chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. We're not chosen by sanctification. All right, so I'm using in, which is actually the more common choice. Uh, your translation may have it different. So that's the life we live. It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's a little bit of a clue as to why we're here. We'll, we'll flesh that out. But first we have to define it. What is the sanctifying work of the Spirit? What is this sanctification? Obviously, it's work that the Holy Spirit is doing. It says it is. It's work of the Holy Spirit. But what is it? What does it mean to say the Holy Spirit is actively sanctifying God's people here on this earth? What is that sanctification? Sanctification is hagiosmos. I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's okay because we don't speak that language. It's all right. I'm using that. It's from hagios, which is the word, word normally translated holy. All right. So sanctification has to do with holiness. Uh, it carries the meaning, then, the word holy carries the meaning of being different, distinct, separate, usually separate from the world and more like God. God is uniquely holy, uniquely separate from the creation in all of his perfections, all of his attributes. Okay? So to be sanctified means to be more and become more and more holy, more and more like God. Uh, we use the word saint. Saint means one who is holy, uh, one who is set apart. And often in Scripture, believers are referred to as saints, hagion, set-apart ones or holy ones. Right? So sanctification must mean then to become more and more holy, to become more and more like Christ, more and more conformed to the image of God. Um, I have a couple of helpful definitions that I want to share with you. This first one is from Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology. Quote, Sanctification may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit, by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. It's a good definition. The simplest definition is from John Frame. John Frame is one of my uh, favorite theologians to read. Uh, brilliant, beyond belief. And he, he has a really short and simple definition for sanctification. God's work to make us holy is called sanctification. It's God's work to make us holy, simply put. Sanctification has three distinct stages, or four, depending on how you want to define it. There is a period in your life where you are increased in holiness at your conversion. There is a sanctification that happens there. You're increased in holiness. Then there's this lifelong process, and I want to do it like this, but I should do it like this because you're reversed from me. So there's the initial sanctification, and then there's this lifelong up-and-down process of sanctification, that's what's happening here in our lives. And then there is a, another jump when we become perfectly sanctified, perfectly made holy, when we're freed from the body of sin. Okay? And that continues on into the eternal state, even after we're joined with a glorified body, a sinless glorified body. So those are the stages. If you're a Christian here today, you've experienced a past sanctification at your conversion. You are currently experiencing a progressive sanctification. And you will one day experience a future perfected sanctification. And we're going to be focused on the middle stage of progressive sanctification because that's where Peter is. Uh, I'm going to look at the, the other stages here briefly, but we'll be focused on that middle stage. So when we think of our salvation, we understand that salvation starts in eternity past, in the mind of God, in election, and predestination, all the events that have to happen for us to be born and to hear the gospel and to come to faith. But let's think about what happens 
in the moments that we refer to as our conversion or when we got saved. What, what happened there? We're not going to go through all of it. The first thing, the first gracious act of God on your behalf is what we call regeneration. You're being made alive. Uh, if you look at verse 3, Peter talks about regeneration. Uh, so, according to the providence of God, that's probably the, the message that I will do in October when I'm talking about free will. God has made us alive. It is God who regenerates us, makes us alive so we could respond to spiritual things. Before that, we're spiritually dead, unable to respond to spiritual things, like the gospel call. We're regenerated. Now we are able to respond to the gospel. For the first time in our lives, we respond to the gospel. We hear the gospel, the effectual call of the gospel. And we're drawn irresistibly and given faith and repentance to believe. Now, in regeneration, in that first initial regeneration, that quickening, that being born again, is a definitive sanctification or an initial sanctification. This is a real, genuine, authentic increase in your ability to reject sin and to do authentically good works solely for the glory of God. That has never happened to you before. Suddenly now you have that ability. Okay? That's the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's in Titus 3. Ezekiel refers to it as being given a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Uh, often in the New Testament, the scripture speaks of believers as having a past tense sanctification. That's what it's talking about. Peter says in Corinthians, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay? This is that definitive sanctification. It occurs in the past. Um, I'll talk about names for it here in a second. But it is a genuine increase in your holiness. A genuine, actual increase in your practical holiness. Peter puts it this way uh, later on in, in the book. We begin to abandon what Peter refers to as the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You begin to abandon those. You begin to abandon your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. It's a change in mind, a change of affection and will that is initial sanctification. You are freed from the shackles of sin. This is redemption from the slavery to sin. You're no longer slaves to sin upon your conversion. Okay? You are freed from what was previously an irresistible power over you. Now you can resist for the first time. Previously overwhelming. Now not so. You're not freed from the presence of sin. You're not freed from sin entirely, but you're freed from its power. Right? That is what I'm going to call definitive or initial sanctification. Sometimes it's called a positional sanctification. I don't like the term because when we hear positional sanctification, we think of it as a positional, as declarative, as God saying that you're sanctified, as judicial, like a sentence. But it's actually not just that. It's an actual practical increase in your holiness and your ability to reject sin. It's really important we understand that. Okay? When you are faced with sin, understand this, it doesn't have power over you. You can reject it. You're capable of it. This is the past sanctification that has occurred to you if you're a believer here today. Most of the time, though, when we use the term sanctification, we're referring to progressive sanctification, that lifelong, uneven process of growing in holiness. Uh, this is the present stage. Romans 12.2 says, com uh, commands us, actually, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed. 
Be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hebrews 12 tells us, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Be holy, be sanctified in all your behavior. Chapter 2, we're told to put aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We're told to grow in respect to salvation, to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, on and on. I won't list all the commands of the New Testament because it would take more than 35 minutes or 40 or 45 or whatever. Right? But you understand, you read your Bible, there's much in the Bible that tells you by your effort to make war with sin and to grow in holiness. Right? There's much that is commanded of you in the New Testament to, to become sanctified, to participate by effort in your sanctification. So that raises a question, doesn't it? What, is, what does Peter call this? The sanctifying work of the Spirit, or in sanctification of the Spirit. Peter's referring to sanctification as a work of the Holy Spirit. But we are told to, by our effort, to be sanctified, to be more holy by striving, by making effort, by making war with sin. That's what we're told. So whose work is it? This shouldn't be hard for you by now, right? <laughs> Well, it's hard, but you get it. This is just another facet of concurrence, concurrence of human responsibility, divine sovereignty. We see them both. We are to make effort. We're to strive through the means of grace, we're, through the Word of God, through other people, through the things that happen in our lives. We're to strive to glorify God through those, to become more and more holy, more and more sanctified, more and more like Christ. But we understand that it's the Holy Spirit that empowers, informs, equips, causes all of that that is happening. There's really no contradiction. In fact, whenever we, if we really think about it, whenever we are faced with divine sovereignty and human responsibility, the fact that there is divine sovereignty over it, that actually motivates us to make the effort. Right? To th just think about it. If, if my personal holiness rested solely on my effort, That'd be pretty daunting, wouldn't it? It'd be ultimately frustrating and unsuccessful. I would quit. I would give up. I can't bear that burden. But because I know the Holy Spirit intends to sanctify me, He's got this. That means I can continue to make the effort. I will continue to fight the fight. I'll continue to get up when I fall, continue to run the race, because I know the Holy Spirit intends for my sanctification. So, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Refers then to Spirit's work to sanctify us in this life. So what then is the end or purpose of that sanctifying work? What is the Spirit trying to accomplish? Well, sanctification. He's trying to, to make us holy. Uh, but, but Peter puts it in a, a specific way here. First of all, whenever we talk about a purpose of something, we ought to know what the answer is. Like the Sunday school kids, they know what the answer is. I would say, what's the purpose of blah, whatever it is? It's the glory of God. We know that, and that's in fact true. The ultimate purpose of everything, everything that exists, everything that happens, every corner of the universe, all realms, all kingdoms, everything, is the glory of God. So whenever we speak of another purpose of something, it's an intermediate purpose. Okay? A purpose that itself will then accomplish the glory of God. That's what we have here. So the purpose of sanctification given here is for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's how Peter puts it. 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now again, I shouldn't have to say too much to, to this particular crowd about this. I, I think you know that the purpose of your election, your regeneration, grace, all of that, your salvation, your sanctification, is to obedience to Jesus Christ. Okay, so I've got to be clear on it, just in case. The call of the gospel, the call of the gospel is not license to sin. It is not justification with a license to sin. It's not get out of hell free card. All right? In the scriptures, repentance is a term that's used interchangeably with faith. Now, repentance is a God-given thing. It, God gives you repentance to faith in Christ. But then repentance is a continual thing as well. It's something we ought to continually be doing. We continually are repenting, continually learning what it is that God would have us to do so that we could be obedient to Him. This is 1 John 2, 3-6. through 6. By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Did you know that was in the Bible? The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Listen to this. If this is the only thing you remember, I'm totally fine with this. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as He, H-E, capital H-E, Christ, walked. It's got to be Aiden. Somebody's phone, it's got to be Aiden. <laughs> Somebody's phone's going off. Was it Aiden? No, it wasn't. Okay, I apologize. I think it might have been. Uh, all right, so do you understand that? Okay. Just to be clear. Salvation is entirely the free gift of God. 100% entirely the free gift of God. Election, predestination, uh, all the work of grace, the work of, of the cross, the work of Christ on your behalf, His perfect life, the punishment, the cross, resurrection, regeneration, propitiation, redemption, your future glorification, the initial or definitive sanctification, all of these are monergistic works. I mean, they're all works of God. We bring nothing. There's nothing to recommend us, nothing to commend us to God that we might deserve any of those great gifts of our salvation. But at the same time, equally true, don't think that you can live a life of sin as a believer. It, it is, it's not possible. It's not possible. You cannot come to Christ as Savior and not as Lord. We don't make Him Lord of our lives. He is Lord of all, including your life. Whether you make Him that way or not, He is the Lord. He is the Savior and He is the Lord. So it's impossible to come to Him in faith for salvation and not submit to Him humbly, lovingly, willfully, submitting to His Lordship. It's impossible. Okay? Doesn't make any sense. So we ought not to believe that we could, we're genuinely regenerated, but we're living in, in active or negligent uh, disobedience towards Him. Okay? If you, if you willfully sin or if you don't care what He has to say, don't think you're saved. It's impossible. All right? So the end or the goal of the Spirit's sanctifying work is. Sanctification is obedience to Jesus Christ. 
It's an end that has always achieved perfect obedience to Christ. It's an end that is always achieved by each and every elect person through initial definitive sanctification, this lifelong process of progressive sanctification, and then that final step of perfection when we're freed from the body of sin. Okay? It's never achieved in this life. So if anybody tells you they've achieved perfection in this life, they're lying. Uh, so why are we here then? We are here for sanctification. That's what we're here for. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing here. We're being sanctified. We're learning to be more and more like Christ. We're learning to be more and more obedient to Christ. That's why we're here. That's why things happen to us. So that we can glorify God through them and become more and more like Him. Alright, now we come to this phrase, to be sprinkled with His blood. It's a curious phrase. It requires some uh, care and some interpretation. Part of God's plan for us, part of this sanctifying work of the Spirit involves this sprinkling with His blood. It's some sort of necessary component here of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And I, I don't think that this is referring to the, the, the atonement of Christ, the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And I say that because this is written to believers, and it's speaking as if this is a continual thing that is happening. Christ died once for all, all sins forgiven, past, present, and future. He doesn't need to be you know, re-crucified over and over again so that we could have our sins forgiven. That was a one-time event, and this seems to be referring to a process in the life of the elect person. It's also not literal. It, it, we know that it can't be literal. The literal sprinkling with the literal blood of Christ. First of all, uh, there would be no reason to do that. There's no mystical, saving, sanctifying effect in the literal fluid that flowed in the, in the veins of Christ. Okay? Some people have a weird, weird ideas about that. Th that's not, there's, there's nothing magical in the fluid that flowed in Christ's blood or in his veins. And even if this could be a literal reference, Peter's readers would never be sprinkled with that blood. It had already been shed. Uh, we would never be sprinkled. So it's not that. It's some figurative reference. But we've got to, we've got to try to figure out which, what's the reference. There's a lot of Old Testament allusions in 1 Peter. If you go through the book, you see a lot of Old Testament allusions. This is one of them. So interpretation here requires us to, to try to understand which Old Testament event or ceremony is Peter alluding to. Now, obviously, there wasn't a sprinkling of the blood of Christ in the Old Testament, but there's, there are sprinklings of blood that we can look at and see how they might be uh, what Peter's using. There, there are, as you read the Old Testament, you know there's lots of blood, right? There's blood everywhere. Uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system resulted in rivers of blood. We don't have to talk about any of that today because Peter's referring to the sprinkling of blood on people. Right? It's a sprinkling of blood on the elect exiles of dispersion They're to be sprinkled with his blood. There's only three times that I'm aware of. I actually put up three fingers. That's rare for me, but I did that right. There are only three times in the Old Testament that I'm aware of where blood was sprinkled onto people. There's lots of blood splattered usually on the altar or the mercy seat, but rarely on people. So originally I was going to look at all three of them, and then I decided just to do two of them. And then I decided last night to just do the one that I think is most likely to be the, the Old Testament illusion. Um, so, if you want the other two, it's the, uh, the anointing of Aaron's sons as priests, which I don't think is what Peter is alluding to, and the, the cleansing of the leper. 
where there's some blood of a bird that is sprinkled on the leper. And that could have something here, but I, but I think in context, the third is the is most likely what Peter's referring to. So that's what we're going to look at. This is uh, the Mosaic Covenant, the initiation of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai. This is from Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. We know how that the story turns out. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what's happening? It's the institution of the covenant of the Mosaic law between God and his people, the people of Israel. So God offers here blessings for obedience to the law. He offers curses for disobedience to the law. He's making with them a treaty of peace with certain conditions. So in response, Moses, who's acting as an intermediary, sprinkles some blood on the altar that represents God's side of the commitment, sealed with blood. Then he sprinkles blood on the people. That represents their side of the commitment, blood being sprinkled on them. They're committing to obedience to the terms of the agreement. So could this be what Peter has in mind? A covenant agreement between God and the people of God confirmed by the sprinkling of blood. Could this, could this make sense? This time, the blood of the Savior, sprinkled the blood of Christ. Sure, it makes perfect sense. It fits the, fits the context really well. I want you to see how. There is in the new covenant an offer of peace. God makes an offer of peace in the new covenant, doesn't he? Faith in Christ accomplishes peace with God. And there are promises that God makes that goes along with that eternal life, heaven. Okay? So it would make sense from God's side there's a covenant. But what about from the side of the people in the new covenant? Believers, us. Remember, the sprinkling of blood indicate, on a person indicates that that person has made a commitment to the covenant. Here, blood is sprinkled on the elect exiles of the dispersion, Christians. So what is the commitment that believers make in the new covenant that here is sealed by the blood of Christ? Can I rewind the tape? The Lordship of Christ that we talked about a minute ago. We make a commitment to obedience to Christ. That part and parcel of the new covenant. Okay? That's our commitment. That's what I think Peter's talking about here. We submit to the Lordship of Christ. Again, that obedience being in practical submission to Christ, being in practical obedience to Christ, that is not a condition of our salvation. It is not a condition of our salvation. It, is, it always follows from our salvation. The divine, saving, genuine, and when I say divine, I mean a faith that comes from God to us. Genuine, saving faith in Christ always results in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Always. Now, there are times where you know, we go through seasons of sin and this and that, but ultimately, we submit to Christ. 
Uh, MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary on this verse. The blood splattered on the altar represented God's agreement to reveal his law. The blood sprinkled on the people signified their consent to obey. That's a reference to the, to the Mosaic Covenant. The Holy Spirit compares that unique pledge to the inherent covenant in saving faith in Jesus Christ, which entails a similar promise to obey the word of the Lord. When believers trust in Christ's atoning sacrifice for them, they're not just accepting the benefit of his death on their behalf, they're also submitting to his sovereign lordship. Okay? Now, would that fit the, fit the context here? The, the book of 1 Peter is a book written to suffering and persecuted Christians, trying to give them comfort and encouragement, exhortation. Sure it would. Right? Think about it. First, you get the comfort of God's side of the commitment in the new covenant. Heaven is, I almost said heaven is for real. That would have been terrible. Justin would have <laughs> kicked me out. <laughs> heaven is for certain. That's better. Heaven's certain because God has made that commitment to us through faith in Christ. Okay? So, man, that's... Bring it on, right? I know I'm going to heaven. You want to kill me? Have at her. We had a lot of uh, examples in, when we went through this with the young people of, of martyrs and their last words, and they're just amazing. They're along the lines of... Let's get this done with. All right? Let's get it going. We believe heaven is, heaven is coming. Right? That's God's side of this covenant that Peter's reminding us here. There's another side that's also an exhortation. Even as you go through this, it's an exhortation. As you go through suffering, persecution, whatever it is that life gives you, this sanctification of the Spirit, this sanctifying life that we live in, whatever you go through, remember you committed to be obedient to the Lord through it. And the Holy Spirit is there to sanctify, empower, and equip you so you can go through it. Right? I think uh, you'll see as we go through this book how this is, is applied. Uh, let's skip down to verses 6 and 7 for just a second. And we'll come back to those in a few years when I get there. But you will have forgotten this day. <laughs> in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For a little while, if necessary, been distressed by various trials. Okay. Now, I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you as, as well as I will someday. Um, we'll each, let's each spend a million years together, okay? Then we'll know each other. Um, but for now, I don't. But I know, what some, I know some of the struggles some of you are going through. And I don't know specifically with others, but I know that there are those struggles. And we all have them. It's part of the sanctifying life in which we live. So what do we do with it? Well, I think there's some comfort here. We are in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's what Peter is referring to this life as. So those things that you're going through, that's what they're doing. They're sanctifying you. If you could see them that way, maybe that's some, some encouragement and some exhortation. Right? That's what we're going through. Now, I started with this book with the young people because I have a fear of great persecution to come in this country. I'm not a prophet. I could be totally wrong and be reversed tomorrow. We go back to the First Amendment again. Uh, but maybe not. 
right? It doesn't look good. That's why I started this. I, this is the book that helps us understand how to deal with persecution. Right? This, is, this is the book. Well, maybe that day is coming for us. Same story, right? We can see that as part of the sanctifying, clarifying, perfecting, refining work of the Holy Spirit. And so we can accept it. Look, we live in an insane world. It's completely insane, right? Men and women and abortion and you could go on and on. It's insane. Well, we should expect it to be insane, right? People's minds are messed up by the fall. We live in this insane world and understand we are put here in it on purpose. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Yeah, this world persecutes people, persecutes believers for doing good, for telling the truth, speaking the truth in love, for sharing the gospel in different places in the world. Okay, that's fine. Because it's part of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And ultimately, I'm going to heaven. Right? So what's the right conclusion? How about this? May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word, for the encouragement that it provides. You could have left us out here uh, floundering, but you didn't. You, you gave us your word. We, we can understand what's going on, and we can be encouraged. And we, can, we can embrace it. We can endure it. We can live joyfully through it. And so I pray for each one here, Lord, that, that your word would stay with them, that you'd be, your word would be an encouragement to them, and they'd understand their, their, how they're empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to live through it, that they might be sanctified through it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.